This is Looking Closer. I'm Jeffrey Overstreet. In 2009, in the journal Pastoral Psychology, Bonnie J. Miller McLemore provided an essay called The Royal Road, Children, Play, and the Religious Life. I stumbled onto this essay while I was writing about the subject of play. Um, I am fascinated by the centrality of play to my physical, mental, and spiritual health. Over the years, I've noticed that I am uh, at peace. I am in better health. I am more capable of hope and faith when play is central to my life. And for me, play takes the form of writing, making stuff up, asking what if, playing improv games with uh, the guys from the band that I started in college. Um, those kinds of activities, going for long, unplanned, unstructured walks with, with Anne, my wife, who is a poet, and dreaming together, uh, playing on the page with words and possibilities. These things, when I take time for them, I'm a healthier person. So I was reading a lot about play and I stumbled onto this, this essay, The Royal Road by Bonnie J. Miller Macklemore. It has stayed with me and I want to read a couple of paragraphs from the end of the essay to you. Um, I should mention uh, that she has been referring to a wide variety of scholars and psychologists, especially child psychologists, uh, but she's also very interested in the correlation between child psychology's emphasis on play and the Bible on scripture's emphasis on play. And so this is how she concludes her essay with reference to another scholar, H. Bushnell, and his his book, Christian Nurture. Uh, all right, so here's how it goes. Christians actually use the term child to include biological children and all people as children of God. Play prepares children for adulthood. But since childhood is an aspect of mature Christian adulthood, play has relevance across the generations. Indeed, children often remind adults of what we have forgotten. The gift of children lies partly here. They invite adults to play. The modern construction of childhood as a time of unbridled play for some children has obscured the role of play in adulthood and the injustice of an uneven distribution of work and play among children in different classes and races. Play is a unique attribute of childhood. But to restrict it by age and class is wrong. If play is an important part of healthy childhood and an essential practice of faith, then it is best shared generously and justly across generations and among classes and races. Ultimately, play should not even be restricted in time or to humans alone. Bushnell has solid scriptural warrant when he connects play with paradise. In Psalm 104, the animal Leviathan cavorts and God takes ample pleasure in its play. 
In Proverbs 8, wisdom plays like a child creating the world and in God's reign to come. As foretold by the prophets, the young child will frolic without fear over the snake's home. That's from, from Isaiah 11.8. And boys and girls will fill the streets with their games. Zechariah 8.5. So, thank goodness for scholars like Don Caps, who boldly invite us to embrace the pastoral potential of humor, rebellion, jokes, poetry, and play. Again, what I have just read uh, is an excerpt, uh, the last two paragraphs of an extraordinary essay by Bonnie J. Miller Macklemore, The Royal Road, Children, Play, and the Religious Life. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in the public library, and one of my favorite discoveries there was a stack of books by an artist named Ed Emberley. Maybe you know these books. These books are very popular in that they teach children, or anybody, uh, the fundamentals of drawing. And there were uh, particular books, I remember, that were focused on drawing monsters. And I loved these books. I loved children's books. I loved Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. I loved Shel Silverstein's books of poetry and wild illustrations. I loved Edward Gorey. I loved strange and even a little bit scary uh, illustrations and cartoons. And in making my own, I realize in retrospect, I was externalizing the things that, that I was afraid of, the fears I carried around inside myself. And that was a sort of process of reckoning, a sort of process of um, learning to define the things that troubled me in the context of play. Because if you feel safe enough to imagine things that scare you, if you feel safe enough to play with those ideas, you are exercising muscles that will serve you well when things really do scare you. Because if you can imagine a story about a monster and imagine your way through that story, then maybe when real monsters show up in real life, the muscles you have developed, the strengths you have developed to imagine uh, a way of reckoning with uh, and overcoming or reconciling with, best of all, uh, those monsters can help you survive, can help you um, find and sustain faith and imagine ways to a better future. There have been disturbing studies, but revealing studies that show that children who have not grown up with a safe place to play are more likely to consider suicide later in life. But those who have grown up in an environment in which they have been encouraged to use their imaginations, to ask what if, to imagine their way through imaginary difficulties, those children are going to be better equipped to deal with challenges in life and not to despair, not to lose hope because the muscles of their imagination have taught them how to uh, live in faith and hope and perhaps help others by helping them imagine ways through the darkness as well. 
Perhaps that is why I loved children's books about monsters and why I liked and began to write stories and draw pictures of monsters. Sometime in the early 2000s, I think, I spoke at a conference uh, called Hollywood Jesus, which was a gathering of film critics and film lovers and filmmakers uh, to share their passions about uh, the art of cinema. And it was there that I first met a guy named Ken Preby. He was there to talk about animation, and he has written a couple of uh, great books about the art of stop animation. Uh, including the advanced art of stop animation. Uh, but he also uh, writes children's stories, children's poems, and draws pictures. And we connected there and have been fast friends ever since. We have shared our passion for Jim Henson and Frank Oz and the, the world of the Muppets. We have compared notes on the movies and books uh, that shaped us as children and that still inform us today, and that uh, probably became the inspiration for our own creative work. And we have spent a great deal of time together in person and online uh, almost daily, just encouraging each other with animation and uh, imagination and links to things that inspire us and I'm really hoping we collaborate on a project someday. Anyway, I had a conversation this week with Ken Preby about his three uh, children's books and th these are fantastic books. You're going to hear about them in our conversation uh, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the titles again here now uh, because you want these books not only if you have kids but for the kid in you who loved uh, Dr. Seuss who loved Maurice Sendak, who loved uh, Norton Juster's The Phantom Tollbooth, who, love, uh, uh, who loves Disney movies. Um, maybe, uh, maybe you're a Muppet fan like we are. Whatever the case, I think you need these books. The first one is called Gnomes of the Cheese Forest and Other Poems. Uh, the second one is called Let There Be Owls Everywhere, Another book of poems. And the brand new book is The Ice Cream Truck at Midnight, Stories and Sketches. Ken Preby knows what he's doing. He studied art, filmmaking, and animation at the University of Michigan and at Vancouver's Institute of Media Arts. He has taught animation courses at several colleges. He's worked on several animated films. And now he writes these extraordinary books. Uh, he lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, due to pandemic lockdown, I've been frustrated at my inability to get up there to visit him recently uh, or for him to come down to uh, Seattle, to Shoreline, where we live. Um, but fortunately, we have the Internet and we have Zoom, and that has enabled our conversation this week about Ken Preby's new books. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I thought maybe we'd chat for about half an hour about these extraordinary books, but we had so much fun reliving our childhoods uh, that uh, the conversation ran for a good full hour. So this is what we call a master shot episode of Looking Closer with Jeffrey Overstreet. Here's my talk with Ken Preby. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Ken Preby, uh, it has been years uh now that i have wanted to interview you about your work uh for looking closer 
so thanks so much for taking some time and uh, for being patient as I kept mentioning that we were going to do this. And now <laughs> we're finally doing this. Huzzah! I'm so glad for the privilege and the honor. And the feeling is mutual. As, as an alien named Greedo once said, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. <laughs> uh, well, sometimes I feel, I, 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 I feel like uh, I'm reminded of that moment in um, The Muppets Take Manhattan when you find out, or no, I'm sorry, The Great Muppet Caper, when we find oh. out that, uh, when we find out that Kermit and Fozzie are, are brothers. Um, uh, because, uh, despite obvious differences, there, there, there is a, a sort of kinship there that is, that is hard to deny. And when you and I first met, um, I just kind of kept, is this for real? Is, is there somebody in the world who has as much in common with me as this, who, uh -huh. who, who loves the Muppets as much as I do, who, who loves children's books and specifically lavishly illustrated children's books as much as I do? who is fascinated with animation, who loves the Inklings, um, loves reading aloud. Um, and I mean, could, could, could this be for real and that, and that we live on opposite sides of the, uh, the border here, me and yes. in the Seattle shoreline area and you in Vancouver. Um, mm -hmm. And, then, and then, then my wife, Anne, met you and she was like, oh, good grief. Uh, <laughs> she was like, I, I, th I mean, She's like, it's not that I didn't believe you when you described the situation, she said, but you're not kidding. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know, it, it's, I know, right? It's very, and we keep finding things. We both had a, uh, a, a, a band, a college band that we used to get together and record songs with a group of friends with a tape recorder, um, as you did with the Garbage Shoot Flyboys. And I, I had a band named Snapple back in the day <laughs> because yeah. that's what we were drinking the first time we recorded something yep yeah and uh uh you have been drawing and uh, writing and illustrating your own stories uh for many many years and that's i i kind of dropped the illustrating part of it um probably soon after i started college but until then mm. i've been illustrating my own stories and uh watching how well you manage both uh, makes me kind of kind of regret dropping that that discipline along the way, um, but <laughs> even the sensibility of your drawing reminds me of a lot of the things I liked to draw when I was a kid. I think we even connected on Ed Emberley at some point as being kind of a, oh, I'm sure we did, yeah, kind of a, a, a mentor in how to draw. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I, there's so much we could talk about, having having so much that we so, so many passions that we share. But we're here to talk about uh, not just your extraordinary new book, uh, The Ice Cream Truck at Midnight, Stories and Sketches, uh, but the, um, I guess in some ways, much more ambitious uh, first two of your books, uh, Gnomes of the Cheese Forest and Let There Be Owls Everywhere. I find myself reaching for them here to hold them up, but this is going to be an audio uh, uh, yes. experience for people, but I have them all right here. Um, for those who have not yet discovered these books, um, Gnomes of the Cheese Forest and Let There Be Owls Everywhere are absolutely loaded in a, shall we say, shell, silver, steamy kind of way uh, with short, very, very short stories, uh, poems that are only 
four, five, six lines long. Uh, poems, very Dr. Susi poems that, that go on for several pages. Um, almost every page has an elaborate illustration on it, some far more elaborate than others. Um, there are a couple of uh, sort of cameo appearances, guest appearances by much younger uh, illustrators. We should probably mention that at some point. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I just want to buy these books for all of the the, the many, many great nephews and great nieces, the many nephews and nieces in my family um, in the hopes that they will get the bug, get the, the itch uh, that says, hey, you can grow up and still love to draw and still love to play with words uh, mm. the way this guy does. I, it, you know, for, When I was a kid, that kind of book gave me hope. It was like, I... I want to grow up and keep doing this. I don't want to like leave that behind as if it were childish. Right. Um, so I, I'm so grateful for the example you give to your, your young readers that this is, this is an art form and it is to be taken seriously. This, this much fun should be taken seriously. <laughs> well, can thanks you, very uh, much. Can you talk a little bit about some of the writers and illustrators who, who set that example for you? Oh yeah. Um, well, I mean, as far by growing up with books, I think the earliest ones I can remember are definitely Maurice Sendak is at the top of the list in terms of uh, you know people who make books. My my favorite book as a kid, one of my favorite books as a kid, um, and still to this day my favorite picture book is Where the Wild Things Are. Um, but and that's what Maurice Sendak is most well known for. But his 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 work. The gamut of his work goes so much deeper and wider than that. And for the last few years, even uh, as an adult, I've been sort of becoming a bit of a scholar of his work. Um, he, I heard the news that he had passed away around the time that I started thinking of the idea to write a book like this. Um, and so I think that there was definitely some sort of, I was very inspired by his life and his death and then catching up on all the work that he had done that I had missed growing up. Um, so he is definitely a huge influence and continues to inspire me. Uh, Shel Silverstein, which you already mentioned, obviously was sort of a big impetus. Who I grew up reading uh, Where the Sidewalk Ends and The Light in the Attic and The Giving Tree. And he was had a really big influence on, on I think, my, my love for books. The other big one is Mercer Mayer, who is known most widely these days for the Little Critter books and the little monster books. Um, but he did a, uh, a whole bunch of books in the 1970s uh, that I grew up with um, that have the most amazing illustrations of monsters. And, and uh, there's one, there's a, a couple books about a professor named Professor Wormbog who collects beasts and travels the world in search of this one little monster called a Zipperumpazoo. And, <laughs> uh, and there was a one called The Little Monster's Bedtime Book, which my mom read to me. Um, as a kid and just, it was sort of my standard bedtime book. Um, and I loved that. And I still, to this day, keep finding every now and again, I'll find another book that Mercer Mayer did in the seventies that I never even knew existed. So he's another really huge influence and a hero of mine. Um, and then as far as writing and storytelling in general, outside of those, those three are big, but uh, Norton Juster, who just passed away this year, wrote, of course, my favorite novel of all time, The Phantom Tollbooth. Yeah. 
And there's, I think a lot of, it's a book I read at least once a year still to this day. It's definitely uh, a book I keep coming back to for its whimsy and its wordplay and uh, just everything about it is, I just, I just love. Yeah, he was, he was a giant for me as well. Um, it's a, it's a shame that there, I don't know, it seems like there should have been more should have been more of those stories from him. Uh, it was so beloved. I'm kind of surprised he never turned it into a series. Um, <laughs> um, and, it, and then it became, you know, an interesting animated movie. Um, yeah. It didn't, it doesn't quite capture the magic of the book for me, but it has some memorable, memorable stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess that brings us to Chuck Jones, right? Um, oh, yeah. But so anyway, we're talking about storytellers and illustrators here, but... Um, you then sort of eventually turned the corner and really focused on animation, not just drawing, not just storytelling, but animation. Yeah. Uh, I should mention that there are, I mean, two extraordinary, I mean, heavy doorstops of textbooks out there that you have written <laughs> on the art of stop animation or stop right. motion animation. Uh, this second one I have here in my hand, the advanced art of stop animation uh, with a foreword by Henry Selleck, the, yeah. uh, the director of, a movie my students often often credit to Tim Burton. I always have to remind them he didn't direct it. No, the Nightmare, yeah. the Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so that is a testimony to the substance of your work uh, on this subject. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into animation and what led to uh, you being Mister Stop Motion Animation Textbook? <laughs> yeah, that seems like a whole another life ago. Um, you know, I mean, it's. I think. I think I got into animation later because I mean, when I was a kid, I was always writing books and writing stories and doing pictures. And then I kind of fell away from writing a little bit when I got, by the time I got to high school, it wasn't really writing as much, but I was always drawing and painting. And so the art stayed consistent, but I always loved movies. Um, In particular, you know, uh, anything that Jim Henson did, and touched and and was involved with um, Star Wars, of course, you know, and and so for me it was like I I kind of by the when I got to high school college I didn't really writing books was not really on my radar so much I I wanted to be a filmmaker and I was Terry Gilliam was kind of a model for me I wanted to maybe work in the animation industry for a while and then eventually get into live action film another another mutual hero by the way yes yeah Yeah, very much so Monty Python is uh is a huge part of my psyche as well I think my whole (laughs) my whole sense of humor um uh comes from comes from so much from Monty Python uh so you, you try and tell the young people of today that yeah, and they won't believe you. <laughs> they don't believe you. Yeah, I used to live in a shoebox in the middle of the road, <laughs> and I lick it clean with my tongue. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think when I was in college, I stumbled upon um, Wallace and Gromit on television, and mm. at that time in my life, I had the opportunity to take some film classes, and I kind of put two and two together, and just and started working for a local animator um, as a summer job, and then one thing just kind of led to another, and I got bit by the animation bug in a big way. And that sort of became, I mean, that's what brought me out here to Vancouver um, was to study animation. And then uh, at Van Arts, where I currently have my, my day job in student services and uh, communications and whatnot. Um, and it's where, my, where I met my wife and everything else. So I've kind of, you know, animation kind of brought me out to this neck of the woods. And 
and sort of got me to put roots down here. Um, and then, you know, I got the opportunity. So I started teaching animation, a few courses here and there. And then a few years later, a publisher contacted me out of nowhere and said, we're looking for uh, like a teacher who may want to write a book about stop motion animation. And uh, at that time, I was actually sort of thinking, writing was always kind of in the back of my mind. And it was kind of, I was thinking, I was just like, gosh, you know, I like, I like what I'm doing and the animation's fun, but I think it'd be really great to start writing again. And then I get this mysterious email from a publisher saying, hey, are you interested in this? And then wow. that another, went out. Another thing we have in common, by the way. I know. Uh, when, well, mysterious, yes. mysterious connections with publishers that lead yes. to books. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't meet mine on a plane like you did, but yeah. um, <laughs> well, no, no, they I mean, still fall from the sky. Yeah, it, w it was a flight attendant. Uh, right, took up a conversation. Yeah, I wasn't on a plane when it happened, but yes, yeah, uh, even even more unlikely. I mean, how how often do you meet a flight attendant when you're not on a plane? Anyway, that's, carry uh, on. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, that's kind of how it got started, and. Um, you know, so I've, I've taught animation at a few different colleges. Um, I've done animation workshops for kids, which I really enjoy. Uh, but at this stage in my life, I think, you know, at some point I sort of, after I did those two textbooks, I kind of felt like I sort of got to a point where I kind of felt like I had done, I had said everything that I felt I could say about that. And um, somewhere around there, I just started. Um, and by then I had two young kids as well. And I started reading books out loud to them every night, which included the books I mentioned, the Mercer Mayer books and the Maurice Sendak books. And, and actually reading those books out loud um, really kind of got me obsessed with the rhythm of the language and how it sounds when you read a book like Where the Wild Things Are out loud or where, when you read a Shel Silverstein poem out loud. And you can do voices and you can have a lot of fun with that. Um, there was another book that came out that got sent to me that my mom sent uh, as a present for, for our kids um, called The Tomato Collection by a poet named Kevin Kamerad, who's from my home state of Michigan. And, um, and when I got that in the mail and read that to my kids, I kind of that sort of also sparked a bit of an idea in my head that, gosh, you know, maybe it would be kind of fun to just start writing poems again and just see what happens. And then once I started kind of on a lark, um, I literally couldn't stop. It became an obsession. Uh, and it took about seven years really altogether to put the two poetry books together because it was originally one huge collection of stuff and um, eventually uh, you know, got separated out into two books because the ideas kept coming from different places and um, I just became obsessed with that whole process of putting these books together. How did, um, how did being a parent of, how has being a parent of small children um, influenced this, uh, this, this late turn towards children, uh, making children's books? Yeah, well, I think that because they, they once they start talking, they, they say funny things and they come up with ideas and they have, you know, personalities and, and things that they enjoy and, and stuff. And you're, 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 um, you get to, you know, experience the joy of, of sharing things that you love with them. And some of those things will latch on and they will love them as much as you do. Um, so I think that just, you know, reading together out loud, I think reading out loud to, 
to your kids at night um, for hours is, is one of the best things that any parent can do um, just in general for just for the sake of your own kids. Uh, but for me, I mean, I was always collecting children's books, even when I was doing animation and I still do animation occasionally. So part of me will always be involved in animation one way or another. But um, I think my heart's now in, in making books because the, the children's book collecting, let alone the, uh, <laughs> you know, I go to two public libraries that I visit every week and constantly checking out children's books and recommending them. And that's become an interesting pastime as well. Another shared passion of ours, the public yes. library since childhood. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And a lot of things I saw at the library when I was a kid just really stayed with me. Um, and, you know, and my kids have, they were very young. They're 14 and 11 now. But while it, since I, since it took me seven years to write those two books, they were much younger during the whole process of putting those together. So uh, some of the poems in both books are actually inspired by things that they said or things that they did. Um, uh, some of, the, some of the, the drawings of children in the book are modeled after my own kids. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then there's actually, each book has an, a guest illustration as well, yeah. which I had my daughter Ariel did a drawing. She was, she was uh, I guess when she was around six or seven, she started this habit of drawing a butterfly in the right corner of all of her drawings that she would do. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me an idea for a poem uh, called A Butterfly in a Right Corner. And then, so I decided that it was only appropriate that she should contribute the illustration for that particular one. And then when I did a second book, I gave Xander the opportunity, my son Xander, the chance to contribute one about the language of seahorses. <laughs> right. That right. was that was something that apparently he told me he knew. <laughs> and so oh, I figured, yeah. well, hey, if you're the authority on the language of seahorses, then uh, tell me about it and I will write a little something about it. So that they were very much involved in the process. Well, we are all born with mysterious gifts and we tend to forget what they are along the way. So I'm glad you, you found a way to preserve that particular gift of his. Uh, yes. Speaking seahorse. Um, and, uh, and Ariel, a, a published illustrator, even before she beco you know, becomes a, a world-renowned dancer, right? Right, yes. Uh, they, are, they, seem, they, seem, they seem like kids who have had all of the encouragement and support they could possibly ask for when it comes to creativity. Um, yeah, well, with my, my wife's very creative as well. We met studying animation. She runs a cake business. She's very involved in the Ariel's dance studio. And uh, we've we've done we've done art together. We've done uh, paintings, commissioned paintings together, uh, where I'll do a drawing and she'll do the watercolor painting. Uh, we actually just recently illustrated a book for another author together. Um, I started doing author visits, um, talking about my books at a friend of mine at his school, and then the librarian at his school said, "You know, this is." Uh, this is really cool what you're doing. I actually have an idea for a children's book, but I don't have, I don't know how to self-publish and, and uh, you know, I don't have an illustrator. So we started talking and we ended up uh, doing some illustrations for, for her book, which and I, I helped her, told her about the whole process of uh, how to self-publish. And now she's off on a trajectory self-publishing books. And so we're hoping wow. to work together again. So a lot of creativity in this house and projects just tend to sort of, I guess, fold over into each other and, and just kind of, you know, you put a project out there, you never really know 
how people are going to connect with it and what other collaborations might come of it. Yeah, I, it's a frequent conversation with my creative writing students about should you save the work you're doing until just that, that dream opportunity comes along uh, or should you just give it away? You know, if, if, if a friend of yours has like a zine or a website or something and they want something of yours in it, um, and I, I, I'm sure this may lead to some catastrophic consequences for somebody somewhere along the way, but I usually recommend that people be uh, very generous with giving their stuff away because if mm-hmm. you focus too much on one particular thing and hope that that's the one, uh, I think it's gonna slow your development, your, your exploration, the discoveries you might make if you were able to sort of do, do that work, put it aside and go on to something else. But also in my own experience, those little things I've given away have often led to the kinds of connections uh, you're talking about. They, they inspire somebody or they, they draw attention from somebody and that leads to a collaboration or it leads to a, a relationship you wouldn't have uh, had that opportunity for some uh, any other way. And doors can new, new doors can open through that. Totally, so yeah. One, one thing that has struck me about your creativity is how generous you are with it and how hmm. there are very few things you touch that don't have some some flourish of the illustrator or some flourish of the storyteller in them. Um, <laughs> I think that I think that's healthy. I think that's good for creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I I mean as you know uh, and as I'm happy to tell listeners uh, I I, I, I would aspire to collaborate with you, with you on something someday. Um, yes. It's, it's well, now, now that, now that you've said it on this podcast, <laughs> it has, it has been recorded in time. This is true. And, uh, and accountability. Yes. Yes. Now, now there shall be accountability and, and, uh, some sort of force of nature that brings it forth. I don't know if this will strike people as, uh, uh as a, a promising possibility or if it will sound like a dire a dire warning or a caution and they should take cover but uh it, it is true that i have i have written a few uh strange stories and sent, it to, sent them to ken and ken has sent me back illustrations of those stories that have really blown my mind and then he has sent me a few illustrations that have inspired me to write things in answer to those and we're starting to develop a file of these things so hopefully hey, that we are Hopefully someday we get to share them with the world uh, in a way that will uh, uh, inspire and delight and, uh, you know, uh, God forbid, traumatize uh, uh, readers around the world. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, but one thing I appreciate <laughs> that would be awesome. You, one thing I appreciate about your work that makes me want to collaborate with you is there is a particular there is a particular kind of illustrated children's book that makes me cringe a bit because it talks that it talks down to kids a bit it's too cute it's too sentimental it treats kids with kid gloves as if they can't handle serious subjects um mm-hmm. your books all three of them so far have very fun poems very silly poems some very cute poems but i would say the majority have a bit of the tim burton in them have a bit of the edward gory in them have a ah. bit a bit of an edge, yes. a bit of a darkness, a bit of a, a mm. subversive nature to them that might have made some people in my family take that book away from me when I was a kid. 
because ah. maybe they were a little too concerned that I some of these characters might show up and show up in my nightmares. Um, yes, so I don't want to discourage people from buying the books because, frankly, I'm so grateful uh, for um, Edward Gorey, for Tim Burton, mm. for Maurice Sendak, who, Me too. Yeah. let's face it, had some pretty dark edges in some of his work as well. Oh yeah, uh, because the, those things helped me reckon with the monsters that were already very real in my head. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the some of the monsters that show up in your books and and how you sort of negotiate that balance of um, what uh, what what you think nourishes a, a child's imagination and and where where you have to pull back and say that might be a bit much. Because I've also seen yeah. in my place of plenty of children's books that really cross the line and make me go, oh, I don't want this in the children's book section of the library because I'm right. dealing with children who might not know might not know how to handle some of these things. But children's sure. literature is full of terrifying things. I mean, Cruella DeVille, for example. Yes. Regardless of the new Disney movie. I mean, that didn't it troubled me as a kid, mm -hmm. but the story was so worth it. Yeah. So how do you how do you negotiate that territory? Oh, that's a good now, question. I'm mixing my metaphors. How do you navigate that territory? <laughs> yeah, it it is something because I'm writing for kids. Although I'm not only writing for kids, I'm writing for you know the kid and everyone. And and I kind of you know hope that um, that my books would be read you know by parents as well, and that they might enjoy them as just as much as the kids do. Because you know if it's a book that's uh, that hopefully, you know, uh, a parent will maybe read with their child or, or um, that they should get something out of it too. Um, kids do like scary things. Uh, actually, the funny thing is, is that when I would do author visits, um, there's a couple poems in there that I always kind of think, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't read this one because I don't want to traumatize these, this room full of, you know, third graders or kindergartners that I'm with. And, uh, but they, they somehow or another, they always find the creepy ones and they always want to hear the creepy ones uh the towel monster is a big hit with kids i was gonna bring that one up yeah that, yes and and that one kind of like was true to life right in a weird way yeah well the towel monster came from um came from sort of a ritual with with my kids when you know when be giving them a bath it became a a, a little rhyme a jingle that we actually sang you know um at, at bath time. And so it, that kind of became a bit of a poem and, and they, you know, they loved it. It was not scary to them. Um, it was, it was rather delightful. Um, I kind of like to go with whimsically spooky. You know, I think whimsically spooky is, is perfectly fine for kids. And I think that they get a bit of a thrill out of something that's got a little bit of a scary edge to it. Um, and I think it's healthy for them too, you know, because kids know, that there's, uh, you know, I think of that sort of, um, you know, that, that GK Chesterton quote, which is actually in the first, it's actually in the prologue of Neil Gaiman's Coraline and is sort of a, a theme of both the book and the movie that, you know, kids already know that dragons exist. Um, how does it go? Fairy tale, fairy tales, uh, show kids that dragons can be beaten because they already know that dragons exist. Something, 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 something to that, to that line. Right. Yeah. And you know, there, there is a poem in there about a, a kid who's sort of battling a monster um, called success. 
um, as well, which is, uh, and the fact that you don't see the whole monster, um, it kind of puts the rest of it in the child's imagination. And if it's, and if, if there's a lot left to the child's imagination, I kind of feel like that's a place where if things are left to their imagination, there's also, you know, like a creature called the book beast and there's other monsters in the, in the book that you don't necessarily see. And I think it's good when you don't see them because then the child can just sort of imagine them. And if they can imagine them, then I'd, I'd like to think that they have a bit more control over how scary it is. Yeah. 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 Because sure. they're the ones imagining it. There's one drawing in the book that I, I, the one drawing in the book that makes me nervous uh, is one called um, Night Frights, which is on, let's see, which page is it on? Gnomes of the Cheese. It's in Gnomes of the Cheese Forest. Yeah. Um, page, uh, what page is it on? 61. The characters on this page, this uh, person with an aviator helmet sticking his tongue out with his pet lion who also sticks his tongue out, but his tongue is torn in half. These are actually my boogeymen. Yeah. These characters come directly from dreams that I had nightmares that I had as a child. And these are characters who showed up in at least two or three occasions and scared me to death in my dreams. Um, oh. So I, I sometimes get nervous that that particular page will cause a similar reaction in kids, but I have not found one yet that has, and I showed that the drawing to my kids and they actually thought that he was just funny. So maybe it's just me. Maybe, <laughs> maybe these are, maybe those characters are traumatic for me, but other kids are brave enough to handle them. Um, one of, the, one, of the, one of the the drawings that I think would have creeped me out as a kid, but in a, but in a way that would have, sent me right to the drawing table to start drawing this character uh, is a, uh, a, a nasty little dragon guy called the Kith Drill. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's sort of slithery and he has these enormous claws and he's got sort of a Smaug-like dragon face. Uh, but he looks like the kind of dragon that could sneak in through, you know, under a baseboard or up through the heating vent or something. Yeah. Um, and those, yeah, that, that, that connects to quite a few things I was scared of as a kid. Uh, but again, yeah. I, was, I was attracted to those things because I wanted to wrestle. I actually found the, I found the Chesterton quote, uh, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. Um, mm -hmm. So right. yeah, you got, I think you had it right. Absolutely. Yeah, pretty close. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned Coraline. I was just about to, because that was a movie where I showed it to some of my nieces during a big family gathering. The kids were all over the house. It became sort of my job to find something that would calm them down and focus them. Um, and I had just purchased like a special edition Coraline DVD. Nice. And so I remember thinking, you know, I think this is just for the teenagers among my nephews and nieces. <laughs> and I got it started and all of a sudden, all of the little kids came running into the room, like early in the movie. And I was like, oh no, oh no. What, what does a responsible uncle do in this situation? Yeah. And they all got settled and they all watched the whole thing, just yes. mesmerized. Yeah. And I remember thinking at several points, man, this movie is even scarier than I remember. Maybe being here with small children, um, 
I'm realizing that it's much more intense than I thought, but you know, but you know what? They loved it. They loved it. They wanted to watch it again the next day. Yep. yep. Um, so yep. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for those storytellers that trust children's intelligence and yet have a sense of how much is too much or what, what, what is gratuitous and what is actually meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, it's like it, there's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take a child to see, uh, you know, Robert Eggers, the witch, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's going a bit too far and not even considered a children's, <laughs> a children's story, but a story like Coraline, because it's housed in, you know, the form of animation, uh, which is sort of, you know, pigeonholed as a medium for kids, even though it's not, um, there's plenty of animation that's sort of more geared more towards adults, uh, which is just as good, but, um, you know, I think, I think it just depends on the child. Some yeah. child, some children, yes, might get, might be sensitive to certain things. Um, you know, and as a parent, I've sort of had to navigate which, which, uh, which sort of stories, which kind of movies, you know, maybe my kids might not be ready for. Yeah. And that just comes from knowing your child it just comes from knowing what kind of thing might, uh, might entice them. And they're going to stumble upon things even that scare them no matter what. Um, there were yeah. things on Sesame Street that scared me to death that sent me running from the living room screaming. Mm -hmm. And I've, those clips are on YouTube and I still cannot look at them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was terrified by the abominable snowman in the Rudolph cartoon. Yeah. Before he showed up. Yeah. There was that roar in the distance and that, oh man, that scared me so much. And, but it was my imagination doing the work. Right. And he, and he showed up and then we found out what was actually the cause of his roaring. That had a profound effect on me because it taught me to stop and question. Could it be that what's scaring me is not actually out to get me or even, uh, even if it is, even if it is an enemy, what is causing this behavior? And is there anything we can do about the cause rather than just attacking the, the monster? Right. Uh, and yeah, I've met a lot of people who say that they saw Watership Down, the animated movie as a kid, and it traumatized them. And I, I understand that because it's so yeah. much intense for, you know, than any other animated movie for children uh, was at that time. Um, but I don't even know that it's an animated movie for children. It's an animated no. movie. Of a, of a book for children at heart but really for adults and yet at the same time i can't think of a movie i loved more when i was 10 years old, mm -hmm. years old yeah when I, when I saw watership down for the first time yeah uh, Kid, kids love kids love creepy things and you know even even you when you mentioned you mentioned the kith drill you know the scary the which is sort of a a, a, a fancy made-up word for vampire dragons which is actually what they are uh, the drawing itself is is certainly scary and creepy, but if you read the poem itself, maybe I'll... Do you want me to read it, or do you, oh, do you, want, do. Do you want to read it? No, uh, no, you, you go ahead. Okay, so, so the message of the poem, even though it has a scary drawing next to it, on fringes of the forest where the Chuck Will's widow calls, the village is bewitched by that which lurks outside its walls. For when the mist is rising and the darkest night is deep, around each sleepy living soul the vampire dragons creep. 
The locals call them kithdril from the elders' native tongue. Their presence is a warning for the old ones and the young. For they only drain the blood of those who've given up on life, who don't see any hope beyond their struggle and their strife. So though there may be seasons when you're sad or most in need, do not remain there long enough to let the kithdril feed. Ooh, yeesh, yeesh. There's something about that word. Yes. Kith, kithdril. Yeah. So, you know, it's the drawing is scary, but the message of the poem is actually one of empowerment and yeah. and basically telling it's it's sort of now that I think about it, it kind of encompasses that Chesterton quote. Um, and it's funny that we're talking about Chesterton because Gnomes of the Cheese Forest also has a Chesterton quote about um, poem, poets being silent on the subject of cheese that is embedded into the poem itself. <laughs> um, so funny the, how that sort of comes to light. Chesterton is coming to light all over the place in this book. But that poem itself is basically a warning that says, you know, don't, don't give up. Life is worth living. And if you, if you get stuck in despair, that, you know, there, there may be deadly consequences of some sort, you know. I think uh, on the subject of the vampire dragon, um, uh, there's another vampire in the same book um, who I think I see a bit of uh, the Sesame Street influence. Um, there is there is Clarence the Cowardly Vampire. Ah, yes. Who, uh, the drawing of him uh, is sort of a mix between the Willem Dafoe uh, vampire of Shadow of the Vampire, I think that movie is called. Yes, um, which uh, is actually uh, a movie about the making of the 1922 Nosferatu. Right, right. Right. Uh, the drawing is sort of a mix between that and then the Count from Sesame Street. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's I, true. I love that drawing because it sort of literally, de well, it doesn't literally, but it, it does defang the idea of a vampire a bit. Right. Um, maybe if, with your permission, I'll read this one. Oh, of course. Uh, I love hearing read others others read my poems. So, uh, folks, just 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 picture a very, um, shall we say, reluctant, um, you know, maybe insecure is the word uh, for how this vampire looks. And here is here is the uh, poem: Clarence the Cowardly Vampire. Clarence the Cowardly Vampire has a life that is very complex. Blood is his favorite beverage, but he's ever so fearful of next. <laughs> I love that. That's the whole thing. And that's one of the things that's so much fun about these books is you can, you, they're, they're like potato chips, you know, uh, yes, right. yeah. you know, you can't, you can't eat just one. They're, as soon as you read that one and laugh and appreciate the drawing and then maybe read it again to somebody, you have to turn the page. And sometimes there are intriguing connections in the chronology and the sequencing of your work. Yeah. The very next page is, is the little man with the red teeth. So we were sort ah. of a thing happening here with, with teeth and vampires and spiders oh. and dragons. Yeah. I never, I never actually uh, realized the connection with the teeth, yeah. the red teeth. So you have a vampire, Clarence is actually has, has teeth, but his teeth wouldn't be red because he's afraid of necks. And yet on the next page, you have a man who does have red teeth. Yeah. I never, I never thought of that. That's a, that's an example of a poem that I, I didn't do a drawing. <laughs> this is funny. I didn't do a drawing of the man with the red teeth because for two reasons. One is that I thought it would be far scarier for that 
whatever that man looks like to be in the imagination of the reader, I thought that would be more terrifying. Um, but the more practical reason is that it's printed in black and white. And if I even added one dose of color to it, it would have probably changed the, uh, <laughs> it would have made the book more expensive to print. <laughs> well, and I don't want people to get the impression that all your poems are in some way scary. That's absolutely not the case. There are some <laughs> really delightful, uh, uplifting, high-spirited things here as well. And there are some that are almost, I mean, the poems are great, but it's almost like, it's almost like you just wanted an excuse to draw this wild and crazy thing. Um, just some quick favorites of mine from Gnomes of the Cheese Forest. We've talked about Clarence the Cowardly Vampire, the Kithril, but there's also the Parliament of Owls, which ah. I feel like that's where a spark was struck and uh, then your second book would be Let There Be Owls Everywhere. But mm -hmm. my favorite drawing in all of Gnomes of the Cheese Forest is the Parliament of Owls. Nice. Um, uh, the Bottle Opener takes uh, an object that we're all very familiar with and turns it into um, uh, a very graceful uh, example of another art form altogether. I will let readers discover what the bottle opener looks like. Um, recess, which uh, as soon as I saw it, I laughed out loud even before I read the poem because anybody who likes Star Wars and anybody who's nostalgic for what they call the opening crawl uh, has, got yes. to, has got to see that. Um, Sidewalk Special reminds me of one of my favorite uh, library books as a kid, uh, How to Eat Fried Worms. Mm, yeah. Sidewalk Special is sort of about a lemonade stand, but it's not lemonade that's being sold there. Yeah. And uh, finally, The Boy Who Looked Up. Uh, it's sort of uh, a yes. big finale. Um, There's a good story behind that one. There is a story behind that one that I can, I still sometimes ask myself, did that really happen? How, how did that happen? So I'll let you tell the story of, of the boy who looked up because I, I'm just, ah. I'm just so delighted that it happened. Yeah. Well, you know, since you and I are friends on Facebook and uh, we both tend to post videos every now and again, uh, particularly of the natural world and, Sometimes even our photos end up looking similar, um, yeah. which is another one of those weird Patterson moment things that happens. But uh, you had posted a video one day of looking up at the trees on your beautiful campus at Seattle Pacific University. And I think you had a caption of some sort that said, you know, the trees are so beautiful, I can't help but look up. And it was just you walking down the road, I guess with your camera, your phone pointed towards the sky, the trees. And I saw that video that one day on Facebook and I thought, hmm, in a very Jim Henson way, I went, hmm, hmm. Um, that kind of, hi -ho. I wonder, hi-ho, I wonder what would happen if uh, there was a, a character who looked up at the, who looked up at the sky and the trees and all the things he finds there so much that his head actually gets stuck that way. <laughs> and he can't actually bend his head out, it gets it just gets completely stuck and what impact would that have on not just him but the people in his community the people in his family um what what would it be like if you were your head was permanently stuck looking up um, that's, one of at, those, that's one of those that unfolds over several pages with a, a yes. much longer more involved story yeah uh, what a what a shock and a and a and a joy that was for me to watch that 
that incidental video suddenly turn into something that that uh, I like to read aloud at the the uh, the read aloud parties we we have from time to time. Oh, that's great! Yeah, well, and then I named I so so because that because of that video and the the story which grew out of that uh, thought process. Of course, the boy's name in the book, of course, is Sebastian J. Thrupp, and of course, the J, of course, therefore stands for Jeffrey. Oh. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad it doesn't stand for Joker, but yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. That, that's such a, it's just one of those small miracles in my life. I, I'm, I'm always amazed when I get to talk to an artist uh, who inspires me. Uh, there have been a few rare occasions where something that uh, has happened in a conversation between us has uh, shown up or seemed to show up in something creative that followed it. And whenever that happens i always believe in god a little bit more mm. uh so thank you for that um uh we have we have almost filled an hour here and i still i still want to mention uh more about let there be owls everywhere book two mm. uh which uh i think feels like a more ambitious uh, uh book in some ways it's not that it has more poems in it it doesn't but it has it, more of the of your more ambitious more elaborate drawings Mm. Uh, some more conceptual drawings in it. Um, some of my favorites in that book include Out in Left Field, <laughs> um, Bert the Origami Whale, which uh, yes, uh, some of the simplest, or at least maybe deceptively so, they, they seem simpler, those drawings, uh, but one of my favorite ideas you've ever come up with. <laughs> uh, Dumpy Tree Frog. I am uh, grateful that I actually have a print of Dumpy Tree Frog uh, hanging in the living room of my home. Um, and and didn't that one have a curious inspiration as well? That that that's that's your fault too. <laughs> to be oh, to is put that it my bluntly. fault? Really? I yes. thought maybe this was something you just stumbled onto. Well, I stumbled onto it in a way. I think that from if memory serves, you um, sent me a photo or posted on my timeline, a picture of a frog, an Australian frog called a dumpy tree frog. And I don't remember if it was you or somebody said, you know, gosh, that feels, I feel like this frog needs a poem written about him. Okay, that, that is coming back to me now. I had forgotten that that, that was my fault. Um, yeah. But I love what you did with it. Yeah, so Tell I actually me. just, I just wrote that on a, on just, I just basically blurted it out as a, as a, as a comment and then I was so tickled by it that I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and make a drawing of the dumpy tree frog and I'll just, I'm just going to include it in the book. So that was one of those things where, again, another online conversation or posting that kind of just kind of grew into something. There, there's other ones like that too. And there's a bit more of an, uh, of a, of an, ob I'm going to say obvious. There there's so many ways what I'm about to say could be misinterpreted. So I want to be careful, but mm -hmm. there, there is more of a sense of hope and faith in let there be owls everywhere. I think, I mean, the boy who looked up in, in Gnomes of the Cheese Forest is certainly uh, an inspiring story, mm -hmm. um, but there, there's a poem called show me a light in ah, yes. let there be owls everywhere that, that really, feels more to me like a song, like song lyrics, like something that um, a character would sing near the end of a Disney movie just in their darkest hour or something. Oh, there wow. Moments in that book that feel uh, almost like 
you were writing to uh, to an audience that maybe needed some of these poems, uh, or maybe to yourself, uh, maybe you mm. needed the poem. I don't know, but um, there is there there is a bit more of a of a of a of a current of um, of, of hope and heart. I think in this in this second book, maybe that's just how I'm reading it, but that's how it strikes. Wow, that's cool. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, they, I think that it's funny because they were they were originally one collection of, of poems and the whole idea of separating them into two volumes came from, I, you know, I showed, I was a biscuit away from publishing Gnomes of the Cheese Forest in a much larger format. Um, and I showed it to another writer friend of mine and she basically said, there's so much stuff here, but it's just, are you really sure you wanna like publish all of this all at once? And she said, you know, you should really think about dividing this up into two. And so, so I thought about it and I'm like, yeah, okay. So I ended up cutting out quite a few poems from Gnomes of the Cheese Forest. And because uh, you were talking earlier about how, you know, some of the, the poems kind of have recurring themes and threads, some of which you just pointed out, which I never even thought of. And that's the joy for me is really getting a sense of what other people find in the poems and in the, not just in the poems individually, but the sequence of them. Um, Cause I'm still hearing things that, that surprise me. Um, and I kind of think because Gnomes of the Cheese Forest, I shuffled the deck and I took a few poems out and I saved them for what became Let There, Owl, Let there Be Owls Everywhere. And so there's kind of a conceptual theme, which I deliberately put into Gnomes of the Cheese Forest in the sense that it has to be read from cover to cover because the first few poems in that book um, are all sort of about monsters and fantasy creatures. But then it comes to a head when you get to the epic poem about Professor Stitchwicket, the professor who loves all the animals of the forest and nature and creatures and, and they all start going missing because there's cities being built. And so the poems that follow after that one kind of delve then into this sort of thing where um, you have like the kookaburra showing up at the front door uh, you have Medusa, the Greek mythology monster going to get a haircut and the snakes on her head keep biting the barbers so they keep dying. The fantasy world is sort of invading the real world. And then from there, it kind of gets into childhood and the fantasies of childhood. And then the poems get a little bit darker and they start getting into more themes about loneliness and a little bit more moody kind of things. And then it all kind of comes full circle with the boy who looked up because it's basically saying, let's come around full circle and, um, and look at everything from the perspective of a child again. That's, that's, that's what it means to me in terms of how I ordered the poems, but uh, other people keep bringing to light other things about how the poems connect and the Easter eggs that are found here and there, which, which surprised me quite a lot. I kind of think of, the first book is kind of like Dark Side of the Moon in that way, and that it, it has a, a theme that kind of comes around full circle, whereas Let There Be Owls Everywhere has a lot of themes as well, which kind of jump from, from poem to poem. Um, but it's, it, it, it feels a bit more like, to me, like uh, The Crane Wife by the Decemberists. It's a lot of sort of one-shot songs, but then there's also these epics that are kind of spread throughout. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I thought so, of that when uh, a crane makes a, an appearance in, in the book, but yeah, yeah. Um, oh, you know, see, I didn't think of that either. 
I didn't know if there was a connection there or not. You just tell me everything that you find in these books, and I will just sit back and listen, because to (laughs) me, that, you know, I I didn't even think of that. So so you you mentioned Stitch Wicket. um, uh, Let There Be Owls Everywhere, of course, ends with this epic poem, literally, The Hunt for the Horrible Hicklesmith. Uh. Yes. Uh, that uh, has a bit of Norton Juster and Dr. Seuss uh, together in it. Yeah. Um, but That was very Lewis Carroll inspired, that one. Sure. A lot of Jabberwocky yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, now we're back to Terry Gilliam again. Um, yes. Yep. Well, yep. I mean, you have a brand new book and we barely talked about it. Uh, mm, yeah. Midnight. Um, how was this project different for you? I mean, it's it's obviously different if we look at the table of contents. It's, it's much shorter as far as the list of poems yeah. uh, and i also have to mention this um because i want people to discover this for themselves oh how does it smell oh man it's it it is drenched in ink it in is that, uh, yeah it is one... the most fragrant of the books and uh, <laughs> uh it doesn't smell like ice cream i don't think it's a scratch and sniff book maybe that's, that's oh that you know i didn't i didn't have the budget for an orange popsicle smelling book <laughs> but, that uh, that would have been a about tell us a little bit about this this project well it i was i worked on it at the same time as the other two books um i started it about again about maybe you know five years ago or whatever um there is one poem in the book. The rest of them are short stories and, and sketches, what I could sort of call more or less vignettes. Um, some of them are only like, you know, one page long. There's one story in there that's only two lines long um, about, about giraffes that surround a mysterious person's house. Which may be my favorite in the book. At least is that? Good. I, do. I like <laughs> it so much. And does too. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I don't, I don't know where that one came from. It, it, the, there's, there's some, some of the stories have, I can point like sort of, you know, as we've been talking about, I can point exactly to the thing that inspired it, whether it's something that, you know, that uh, somebody said, uh, but other times I've just, I have no, no clue, no clue. I no I cannot reclaim any responsibility for, for where they come from. But um, so there is one poem about the DJ in the, there's a poem about sort of this phantom DJ who uh, lives out in the desert. And that was originally supposed to be in Gnomes of the Cheese Forest. Um, but I set it aside and kind of, that's one of the ones that I cut and set it aside because I felt like it needed a different treatment and it needed to be drawn. It's, it's a different medium um, that the illustrations are in. The drawings are all done with a charcoal pencil. Um, the, the drawings in Gnomes of the Cheese Forest are pretty much all done with ink by the time I got to Let There Be Owls Everywhere, I started experimenting with ink and china marker occasionally. So that's why some of the drawings have a bit more of that uh, texture to them. But with, with Ice Cream Truck at Midnight, I wanted to try, um, I wanted to take a break from ink and try a totally different medium because I was starting to really enjoy the textures that the china marker gave me. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I should uh, make, you know, use, just use a different medium altogether. Um, so, and it was also inspired by books by Sean Tan, particularly Tales from Outer Suburbia. I was hoping Tales. we were to get around to him, yes. Yeah, yeah. So he's another artist that I've discovered more in recent years, in the last five years or so, who has really sent me on a trajectory. Um, and then also The Mysteries of Harris Burdick, which is a 
book that I grew up with and kind of rediscovered again by Chris Van Allsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up loving his work as well. And I kind of became more reacquainted with him in more recent years. And then while I was working on, once I decided that I was going to do this book uh, inspired by those, those two artists, I stumbled upon this other book called Daydreams for Night by John Southworth with illustrations by David Wimay. And I stumbled upon it in a, in a bookshop, not knowing anything about it. And when I stumbled upon that book, I was kind of thinking, ah, now this is, this is the kind of book I want to make. And so it was kind of, so it's, it's inspired, I'd say by those three, those three artists in general. And then of course I'm putting my own, my own spin on things, but it is, I, I, I think of it very much as a concept album as well. And there's connecting, there's supposed to be connecting threads from image to image because in Daydreams for Night, you see that a lot. There's actually certain themes and motifs that show up uh, from drawing to drawing. And so the whole experience of reading the book from cover to cover with all the stories in sequence, like that's the way it really ideally should be read because there will be certain echoes and certain themes that come back to, to themselves and kind of you know uh, come around full circle. Um, in a very Pink, the Pink Floyd, the wall kind of a fashion. So my, the way that I put the books together and the way that I sequence the poems and put them in the order that I want them, that I ultimately decide that the order should be in comes from thinking it like a record album and thinking about the sequence of songs and how they flow from one to the next. Which, so it's kind of a different kind of a project. You, you do have this sort of secondary fascination with, with playing DJ. Can you say a little bit about that? Uh, well, I, my dad was a DJ when he was in college and he used to play me reel to reel tapes of himself um, uh, on the radio. And I always thought that was so cool. And so when I got to university of Michigan, uh, the first place I went was the radio station and had a radio show uh, on and off for five years where I would do funny voices and play whatever music I wanted. And uh, until the late night, you know, wee hours of the night. So I have a very much a love for radio, a love for DJing. The DJ poem was inspired by not only my own experience with being a DJ and loving radio, but also by um, Wolfman Jack's character in American Graffiti, uh, sort of this phantom DJ who's playing these songs, which become the soundtrack to the lives of the kids and their interactions and the things that are going on in the movie. Um, and there was a poem by Mike Agronoff called Ballad of the Sandman, which also uh, had a big influence on how that poem sounds and how it's structured and the, the, the storytelling behind it. Hmm. Um, there's a bit of Twin Peaks in there, too. Epis part eight of uh, Twin Peaks, The Return with the uh, the radio station in the desert and the black and white. I, I studied that episode quite a lot as I was working on those charcoal drawings uh, yeah. because I wanted to capture that, that, that radio station in the desert at night kind of vibe. Um, yeah, and, then we, and then we both connected very strongly with a movie called The Vast of Night. which was Yes, a- that was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, I love that whole mythos just behind radio and deserts and music and radio towers and records and that is just that just gets me excited i love 
I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about how what we're doing right now sort of brings all these things together because yeah. we're talking about the drawings, we're talking about the, the poetry and reading aloud, we're talking about all these illustrators and storytellers and imaginations that have inspired us. Uh, but you've got a headset on and you look a little like a DJ right now. And, uh, you know, we're recording. We're about to send some of these things out out there. Mm -hmm. I don't sound anything like Tom Waits, who I think is the best DJ, but uh, <laughs> uh, move it down by Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, boy, you know, and we, we've, we've spent so little time talking about the Muppets. Uh, maybe we'll have to save that for another time uh, when there's a, mm. another good occasion to talk about. There, 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 there are always good occasions to talk about Muppets. But Anytime. Uh, anybody who's anybody whose work has an evident thread of Jim Henson in it, I think, is is someone worth paying attention to, and I'm really, really grateful that you have absorbed so so much of his wild imagination, but also also his heart. Mm. Um, and that's well, his 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 outlook, you know, his just his his positive outlook and his creativity, and his his generosity, you know. I mean, is is just I very much i've learned a lot of life lessons from not just his work but also his life and how he lived his life and uh that's the kind of that's the kind of whimsy and joy that i i, I want to you know that i, I want to put in any kind of work that i do i don't know if we're going to find a better a better note to wrap up on than that uh that's, that's <laughs> great that sort of sums it sums it all up so uh even though this is an audio podcast, I do like to do screenshots that I can share uh, uh -huh. on the website. So I am going to take a moment and try and hold up all three books here oh. once. So later I can go back and grab a screenshot and share this with people uh, on my website. And boy, this is doing a really creepy thing. I don't know how this is happening, but you and I are in the same time zone. And, yes. and while my my image here on the Zoom call has gotten progressively darker and scarier. Yours remains bright and radiant and happy looking. So uh, hmm. I don't know what, what, what that, what strange truth that is commenting on. Uh, thank you so much for, for these books, for the images, for the poems uh, and for your time. Um, we obviously could just keep going and fill another hour. I wanna make sure that um, readers or listeners and readers uh, know where to find you. Uh, so kenpreby.com, and I, I do mm -hmm. want to note uh, how that is spelled for people. That's kenpreby, P-R-I-E-B-E.com. That will take them to your website where they can actually see you drawing and animating and <laughs> different branches of your creativity. Uh, but you're also on Instagram, uh, and, and there is more than one of you on Instagram, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That you have your own Instagram uh, yeah, account, I, and then there's a Books by Ken Preby account. Right. So books by Ken Preby, Instagram.com. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's where you can find updates on, uh, that's sort of my handle for, generally for the books that I'm working on. Um, the book I'm working on now is actually, my next book is going to be published by um, Bandersnatch Books, which is a new publishing company by some mutual friends of ours, yes. um, who I discovered through the Rabbit Room, and they they want they want to work with me on my next book, which is going to be a, an alphabet book with goblins, and that's all I'll say about it at this point. Fantastic. Um, but uh, there, I will I will share a few little 
teaser, maybe things, little new nuggets, and, and where to where to where to get that when it comes sometime next year. Uh, and then I have my own personal Instagram, ken.a.preby as well, where I post other things, mostly books. <laughs> well, recommendations of other extraordinary children's books. Anne and yeah. I, Anne and I both will load up our hold requests uh, at the different public libraries that we are members of. Uh, with things that we have seen on your account. So thank you for introducing us to so much good stuff. I'm also noticing, by the way, that uh, this is predictable, that you and I both have Kermit oh, yep. in the background yes. uh, of our Zoom stages here. Uh, <laughs> a little too predictable, perhaps, but yes, there, there they are. My, my Kermit is a mug with an actual owl feather in his sticking in oh, with, wow. the, with my pens. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. And I, uh, um, back in my home office, I have an actual uh, big bird feather. Uh, in yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, that's cool. Well, this is where people are going to start rolling their eyes and going, oh, there they go again. There they, yeah. Wow. Um, folks, if you have any questions for Ken, uh, he is very responsive on social media, I think you will find. Um, uh, like, I, like I said, the, uh, the best artists uh, have a generous spirit and Ken really does. So um, thanks so much for taking uh, a substantial amount of time here this evening to talk about your work. I hope people will discover the books and discover the books that you love and uh, that this is just part one. We'll be doing a part two again soon. Uh, folks, you should also know that at lookingcloser.org, uh, if you do a search for Ken's name, you'll find uh, this is not the first time he's popped up on, on my website. Uh, we <laughs> Um, reviewed one of Tom Moore's films, uh, if I remember correctly, um, yeah. having a dialogue over email that, that I then published uh -huh. uh, about one of those films. Uh, another great animator and imagination we both greatly admire. Yeah. And, uh, and I think there are other things that we have worked on together as well there. So yeah, we talked about, we talked about Labyrinth. Oh, Labyrinth. That's, yeah. that's right. we did a dialogue about that. Yeah. Well. Great. Well, it's always good to see you. Uh, thanks, thanks for your time, uh, folks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. And um, I think you'll be hearing from Ken again here probably soon. Yeah, and, and thank you, Jeff, for your encouragement and your support, your inspiration over the years. Uh, your, your, that, that talk that you gave online about how, how should we tell stories <laughs> from many years ago, that, that, that talk has become such a great compass for me and so I just want to put it on the record and, and thank you for that, because your, the inspiration that you provided and your, your faith and your outlook on the world has had a huge impact on everything that is actually in these books to begin with, in addition to, of course, the little anecdotes that we've shared that have turned into little poems and stories themselves. So I think that there's more to come on that, on that front. So I'm very grateful for our friendship that has uh, had a great impact on, on my life and my art as well. Well, and, and likewise, thank you. Uh, all right, I am going to wish you well here on the recording, but then as listeners can probably guess, I'm just gonna stop the recording and we're gonna keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. You've been listening to a Mastershot episode of Looking Closer with Jeffrey Overstreet. 
You can find more than two decades worth of writing on the arts, especially movies, at lookingcloser.org. You can find me at facebook.com slash lookingcloser. I'm on Twitter as Overstweet. Both the writing at lookingcloser.org and these recordings are made possible by those readers and listeners generous enough to respond with donations, and I love sharing exclusives with them in our private Facebook group. To learn how you can support Looking Closer, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. That's overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. I want to personally thank Laura Hiddle and Timothy Grant, who have been particularly helpful in keeping the site going, sustaining it, and filling it with imagination and inspiration. Thank you, Laura and Timothy. You can also dig deeper by picking up a copy of my memoir of dangerous movie going, a book called Through a Screen Darkly. Or explore my adventures in storytelling by reading the novel Aurelia's Colors and its three sequels. Original music for this episode comes from my lifelong friend Todd Fadel who makes up half of the band, Agents of Future. Look them up at agentsoffuture.bandcamp.com. If you have any questions about what you've heard, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jeffrey Overstreet reminding you to look closer and let's talk about it.